WCBN FM Ann Arbor presents the Dave Markey Rockumentary. 1991, the year punk broke. Featuring live performances from the bands that took to the stadium stage as the prophets of a new age of rock and roll. Sonic Youth. Dinosaur Jr. Nirvana. Gumball. Babes in Toyland. The Ramones. Free, 9 p.m. Wednesday, May 11th at Arbor Brewing Company. Don't forget to bring your flannel. Go forth! Go forth and thrash! telling her to stop good afternoon you've got living writers i'm t hitzel and today on the program i'm so pleased to welcome michael heffernan here to the wcbn studios michael welcome thank you i feel so good here <laughs> wonderful place um it seems like I we were just before we came on the air. I yeah. should say we're taping this on the fifteenth of April, two thousand eleven. I hope you got your taxes done. <laughs> it's weird, but tax day is actually now Monday, the eighteenth. I don't know why. Don't tell me. Liz Something about knows. Massachusetts. Liz, our engineer knows. Um, it's Liz. Happy Patriot's Emancipation day. day. Happy Emancipation Day. Really? But we're not emancipated from the tax man. <laughs> no, we should try to um, fix that. Yes, yeah. yeah. And on Monday we will, on Patriots Day, because all good patriots pay their yeah. taxes, right? Yeah, well, yeah. And that's that's in Massachusetts, though. Oh, it's even, I think it's even, it's on our calendars here at Michigan, oh, is it? too. Yes. The 19th yes. of April. And you, this is funny that you bring up Massachusetts, right. because right before we came on the air, right. you were saying how... Being a Detroit native, right. you actually eschewed Michigan for the University of I, Massachusetts. Well, the truth is I had a, a Woodrow Wilson fellowship, at that time a very good fellowship, and, and it still is, I think, being offered. I'm not sure, though, but it was uh, um, suitable for a Jesuit-educated person like myself from the University of Detroit that I should have been uh, pushed to apply for all the different fellowships that were available at that time. It's not the same these days, I understand, from my own graduate students. It's not as much of a, uh, you know, an environment for, for, for graduate study to be supported that way. And I could have taken it anywhere to any choice of school. And uh, I hadn't been very far across the Ambassador Bridge, you know, from from Detroit. Because you you were born by in the Detroit, age of twenty one, yeah, in um, nineteen forty two. Correct. And and you you hadn't you so you had, didn't get too far across the Ambassador Bridge. Well, <laughs> to Canada, ex except for some some summer vacation trips when I was a child. But the idea of actually going anywhere else from Detroit, you know, it was uh, something I felt at the time I ought to be more adventuresome. And so, and you, with this particular scholarship, you yeah. were, you could, you were mobile. You could have chosen any school in the United States, Correct. basically. But Which you was scary, to, having that much of a choice. Sometimes the vastness is yeah. so overwhelming. Well, it, what it came down to ultimately was uh, I decided to go anywhere but any place that my, my uh, professors were recommending me to go because they were all wanting me to go to their old schools where they'd done their, their uh, PhDs. 
uh, as luck would have it, one day when I was minding my own business, taking notes in a Milton class in the English department, the chair of the department came in and said, there's a phone call from you, for you. And, and it was from the, the, the chair at the University of Massachusetts offering me a full ride. That's a call you to, can't refuse. <laughs> right. To go to one school, UMass. So all of these other places that I had tried to sort out for several weeks because you could go anywhere you wanted to. They sort of fell away at that point, I would I think. had a full ride. And I knew myself well enough that one year with a Wilson Fellowship for a couple thousand dollars, I, I couldn't assure myself that I would, I would be good enough or... or, or uh, industrious enough, or adapt quick enough, to or what adapt was expected. to this whole strange thing. Yeah, exactly. It was yeah. more. It was more my fear of what I would be like once I went to graduate school, and and I guess it was a fear of of moving away from where I was familiar because everything pretty much had gone my way as a, as a, a younger student. But up to this point, graduate school was a mystery. Yeah, because well, it seems like you were a bit of a favorite son, and you had stayed rooted to the area That's where right. you were from and right. the, you were known well. and Well, and I'd gone far enough away from the old neighborhood, so to speak, down on, this, on the southwest side to go out to the Jesuit high school for high school, which made me an exile in my own neighborhood. Well, because you were um, maybe pushing too far ahead of yourself as perceived by the neighborhood or as perceived by some of the people in the neighborhood my mother and father were perfectly happy to see me be a kind of uh you know different type of person my mother particularly i i i can say this because she's gone and so are the nuns i suppose from that particular school which i won't name but the uh you the mean your high school michael no, the, or the, when all through the time I was in elementary, oh, elementary school, from middle. from kindergarten on up through eighth grade, my mother was constantly over there struggling with the nuns uh, to stop treating me as if I was some kind of uh, mad dog simply because I'd sat on the wrong uh, cushion or or uh, mat. We sat a, we were supposed to squat on mats in kindergarten. From the first week of school, I had alienated the first of the nuns I ever had anything to do with by doing something that she considered uh, reprehensibly revolutionary or anti-establishmentarian or Already a poet. (laughs) Already, I suppose. We sat on mats. It must have been the the, the, the wrong mat or something. Maybe I moved somebody else's mat. I don't know what. I also remember an incident in the art room where I was supposed to paint nice flowers and clouds and stuff. What did you choose to paint? I chose a big, because I'm colorblind, um, partially at least. I I took the biggest um, container of bright, bright red paint, got one of the brushes they allowed me to use, and, and, and painted this huge mass of red all over this great sheet of paper that was enormous. And I, I, I thought... You know, it was good being an action painter. I should be Jackson Pollock or somebody in kindergarten. I, of course, I didn't know anything about that. She walked in and saw me doing this. Was totally horrified. The nun did. And you were called out of my control. Mo- I was out of control and called my mother over 
to have words with her about me. In other words, I was being an artist and a free spirit in, in the art room, which I thought was what we were supposed to do there. <laughs> How could you be so wrong, Michael? <laughs> well, nobody told me. This, you know, this is, a, this is something they want you to do, and they're Michael, not serious about you doing it on purpose the way you'd like to. So by the time my mother and I were done with my being in grade school, she was, she was uh, eager to get me to move somewhere else for the next stage of my education. And that's where the Jesuits came in. And, and I went uh, out to U of D high school. And how were they um, as compared to the nuns then? Because you, so you didn't have priestly um, aspirations at that point. No. Although you had a, an, an Irish upbringing. Well, Irish, Irish and German. Your, your mother German? My, the, the strongest background I was part of in, uh, in the place where I grew up was uh, uh, West Prussian, essentially, out of what is, what is customarily referred to as the Rhineland. My biggest ancestry, along with the Irish, and the part that was most definitive of the neighborhood that I lived in, uh, German Catholic Rhinelander, background along with the Irish that came by way of my uh, my father's background from uh, from uh, uh, Tipperary the, where the Heffernan the, the Heffernan family tends to be from the Midlands of Ireland and and that was his background but his mother also had some German ancestry so I was German on both sides of the family as well as Irish and and so you know the uh, so hence the intensity. Yeah, all of that stuff, and it was a good uh, yeah. Hence the intensity, an intellectual and rebellious kind of spirit out of out of the good old fashioned, you know, um, German Irish. Yeah, constantly mixer. Before yeah. we go any and further, allowed to be smart too, instead of taking orders and doing what the nun said. I'm going to read your, your short bio because um, you're actually um, the book, your your latest book of poems, uh, Michael Heffernan, uh, at the Bureau of Divine Music. Yeah. I'll read the short bio on the back, Michael, and then we'll get back to the conversing. Michael sure. Heffernan is a Detroit native who has taught poetry in universities in Michigan. Kansas, Washington, Ireland, and since 1986 at the University of Arkansas, Fayetteville. At the Bureau of Divine Music is his ninth book. His awards include the Iowa Poetry Prize, the Porter Prize for Literacy Excellence, two Pushcart Prizes, and three grants, the maximum awarded, from the National Endowment for the Arts. Michael, thanks for being here today. I don't think thank I've thanked you, you yet. Well, thank <laughs> you. I appreciate it. Thanks for joining me. Yeah. <laughs> and, so, and this is the ninth book. The this ninth is book. Michael Heffernan's ninth. Um, yeah. So what I'm wondering is, do you have one of the, is there a poem from this early time um, when you're talking about either the nuns or the, or the, the priests? Because um, you oh. brought other books. Because on the table, it's, we sh it's fair to say that we also have Love's Answer, um, and the man at home. The man at home, and yeah. the night breeze, the, the night breeze off, off the ocean. The ocean, yeah. And so, out well, of these books, yeah. Maybe is there? I just wondered, since that's what we began the program with at the top of the hour, if there was a, a sort of an. an well, an, there's a poem that's about um, some of this. Uh, the that celebrant. I've, I've mentioned. No. Well, celebrant is kind of an odd poem that came out of. Uh, oh gosh. Sort of an elegant place that my my wife and I visited 
in um, in oh. Ireland in um, 2006, I think it was, um, and. The, the reference to the priest, priest there is kind of incidental. It's more or less to suggest something about the, oh, kind of the ceremonial aspect of things. I'm not sure it's the best thing. And what I'm looking at here is, is the one called um, uh, ge- geometric. 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 Yeah, which, which really does talk about the Jesuits. And, and all of that sort of educational stuff. Um, do you feel like reading this one? I certainly Michael. do. I certainly do. It also it also dovetails into a sort of poem about the uh, the old neighborhood and um, Michael's um, um, experiences early on with uh, uh, with women, uh, which was not something the Jesuits necessarily forbade us to think about. Of course, the nuns thought. All the boys were dirty-minded little wretches, and uh, so I got to be known for one. And simply because I would, I, I liked girls, and I would love to sit next to them. I thought they were pretty, and they, um, I thought they would like me, but they didn't. So you know, uh, I, I had a mistaken experience once, once on the uh, on the schoolyard that led me to believe that a, a girl liked me, but she just wanted to kiss a boy, so she grabbed anyone she could find and kissed him and ran away. Well, well then that was good that you were standing <laughs> close by, Michael. <laughs> a gift from Providence. <laughs> I know, but, I, but I, I was so shocked. I thought, well, I guess that's not what it's cracked up to be. But uh, anyway, this... This this dovetails around something that I don't know. I must say at the outset, I don't know how these pieces start, and I don't know how they're going to go where they go. Once they get where they're about to get, uh, the poem begins to show me where it wants to move in what is essentially a, a pure act of imagination that will gather things from various resources. And I don't know where these resources are going to fit until I'm actually using them. And if they end up being material from my own life or my recollection of it or fa- favorite memories of the past or not so favorite, uh, they'll simply have to, sh- to find their way into the poem the same as any other details. And they, may, they might be intellectual details that will come out of my reading of history, my, you know, uh, the, the stuff I learned from from uh, a fairly good education out of out of reading Virgil in the original and having to, you know, turn in a hundred lines of the Aeneid every day. I love there's you, you you translated the Aeneid when you were in in high school. Oh, right? I translated parts of it. Parts of it, yeah, because we were required to for two years with the Jesuits. And sure, and you're learning the rhythm of the language. I there. learned everything about about Latin metrics without even knowing it uh, in terms of how they, they they showed us how the line was put together, but knowing it in the sense of understanding the, the importance of it as a basis for the metrics of European poetry thereafter, and that meant English as well. So they were teaching me ultimately what I would, what I would need to know in order to examine uh, the, the, the way of writing a line of English poetry. When I when I produced um, a translation of some uh, some Virgil that I thought was a, 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 an effort at 
at doing uh, a poetic version rather than just a line-by-line, uh, more or less literal account of the, of the content of the line as, as a Latin hexameter. Um, I showed it to my Latin teacher, and he said, well, this is, this is really quite interesting. And you wrote it in, in uh, iambic pentameter. And I said, well, yeah, I think that's what this is supposed to be. He said, well, that's, uh, that's good, because that's the standard line of English uh, uh, narrative, blank verse. I think he taught me about that at that stage. So I didn't even know that I was I was walking in the steps of the early English poets who did exactly the same thing when they learned their metrics from Latin and moved over into English. Uh, they they started work. if it was if if it wasn't rhymed in the original, why make it rhyme in English? So and that that was I I, di- I didn't invent this. It was just something I thought of from what what I was being taught by the by the Jesuits. So there you go. And we're going to take a short break. Sure. And we'll be back to hear more from Michael Heffernan, his latest collection of poems from Wayne State University Press, Made in Michigan Writer Series, I might add, at the Bureau of Divine Music. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, you've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm pleased to have joining me in the studio, Michael Heffernan. Uh, and a quick shout out to say thanks to Liz, uh, Liz Wayson, for engineering for us today. And that, and you chose some some beautiful music for today, Michael. The Bach was it? Uh, could Bach's you... musical offering. And why did you choose that particular piece? Like, why did that come to mind out of all the musical offerings? <laughs> I didn't know it until a very short time ago. And it's a kind of odd piece that he wrote, I guess, as an answer to something that the emperor of Prussia or whoever he was working for did, who, th- who had a- aspirations or illusions, I suppose, of himself as a musician or a composer. So and it's quirky and I think it's unusual Bach. It doesn't sound like what what is the quirky part of it there? It's that? just the it, it's the way the uh, the way it was organized as a parody of sorts. I think he did it in notes that were in reverse from the ones that he had from Frederick 
the 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 composing emperor so in a, in a way it's kind of a send-up as well as an homage as far as i know i could be wrong i'm, I'm sure your listeners are going to come up with better information <laughs> well they can email later they can I email so. me later <laughs> set the guy straight <laughs> and i'll pass it on to you okay no but i think that it makes perfect sense then why you would pick that one because it's not normal <laughs> <laughs> quirky eccentric quirky eccentric yeah. Yeah, eager for a send up <laughs> I love the St. Matthew Passion I listen to it all through Holy Week which is coming up here shortly but uh, it's too much I like the little quirky stuff that is Bach inventing jazz you know that sort of thing well but anyway well let's hear some of your inventions from the page Here's, now would you because we were talking about how you you sort of almost cut your chops with the Jesuits with learning the the way an Eng, a line of English poetry would could, move right um, could you could you talk and, about that with this next poem you're gonna read Michael? well well one yeah sure and once once I discovered how it was possible to work within that medium that had been there for a thousand years or more um, I, I began to notice, even though I wasn't aware of it, and I wasn't thinking consciously that this was the case, that it could be used as an instrument of composition, and that it was possible to write in these uh, lo- these kinds of metrical lines. I was all about free verse when I started off, because I thought I was Walt Whitman or Arthur Rimbaud, and um, then I found out the old. Uh, measures of uh, of traditional poetry were instruments of uh, wonderful creative invention, and that they were not to be restrictive uh, at all. They were meant to be um, um, uh, guides to uh, to creative composition rather than something that would put you in a straitjacket. So not like I've, those nuns. Well, exactly. <laughs> this this kind of gave me a different way of looking at it, and 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 actually finding it. Uh, and I should say nuns Liberate. of that time. I'm sure of that time. Nuns They're not that now way are not, anymore. Not no, no, like no. That now. They're not that way. I, I'm just talking like a Catholic boy who remembers the age of the ruler. The age of the ruler, particularly third grade, when uh, well, never mind. That was it was too horrible. Uh, this is called geometric. And uh, okay, here it is. Euclid became my savior in tenth grade. The year the Jesuits wanted me a priest. They sent me to Manresa in Birmingham and put me in a room with a radiator that knocked all night to keep me up for prayer, nothing for breakfast, not a thing for lunch, and barley soup and Wonder Bread for supper. It was no wonder, then, that Euclid cried out of this darkness of mortification in a squared circle with a human face that set me right about four equal lines drawn from a radius the square root of pi, this being God, as Dante painted him, and good enough for me to believe in, in place of hellfire and my going there. Because, as I recall, that square was purple, a color I can see, though colorblind, as I've been since the wet grass was red after a rain when I was four years old. That was the spring of 1947. My grandmother had lathered the lye soap the way she would when I said, damn. I can't say this word on the air, can I? Well, could you You say, but we could say, would you be comfortable just saying when I said, damn, damn, damn Damn or hell? Great, fine. Hell or damn. Okay, perfect. Okay, hell or damn. Yes. 
None of those are uh, against the those rules. Those are fine. Okay. This being God, as Dante painted him, and good enough for me to believe in, in place of hellfire and my going there, because, as I recall, that square was purple, a color I can see, though colorblind, as I've been since the wet grass was red after a rain when I was four years old. That was the spring of 1947. My grandmother had lathered the lye soap the way she would when I said, hell or damn, and I ran up the stairs to the closet I always hid in when she got the suds and never could find out where I was hiding. That circled square is purple in my mind because I can't see Euclid colorless. This purple borders him upon his throne of lordly order the geometer alone encompasses in his mind's eye. I can't remember whether Euclid ever attempted squaring the circle, though he must have. It wasn't something Father Lotze covered. He was the one before theology who told us Euclid looked on, on beauty naked, meaning to shock us, while he tapped the board in perfect, classic, solid geometry, his chalky sutan flying with his back turned and nothing for it but a reverie about the breasts of Emil Bogan's daughter and whether they were perfect cones or spheres. Her father was a tailor up the street. He often stood in front on the sidewalk, rolling a piece of chalk between his palms. He made it crack against his wedding ring. Behind him, the mannequins have nothing on but open-toed high heels and strings of pearls. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. <laughs> L- yeah, okay, thank you, too. So, so, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure so, I, I almost didn't get away with that. The, but. No, no, that was great. And, I, and that is so evocative of, of the old neighborhood, too, by yeah. moving to a, a character that comes even yeah. from like a bridge from his, his daughter to yeah. then to the moment on the street. It's, well, the, the, the joke that's hidden in there is that Father Lotzi would never have probably even thought of quoting... Uh, 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 what's her name? Uh, Malay. Um, Edna, Edna St. Vincent, Vincent Malay. He never would have thought of that. But but I make him joke about that because he he might have been just the kind of guy that would have said something vaguely off color to get the uh, get the attention of these these sophomores. So a good Euclid, teacher. Yeah, a good teacher. Euclid alone uh, has looked on beauty bare. Was, was the Edna St. Vincent line, as far as I recall it. I may have it slightly off. But for him to stand there to entertain us with something mildly um, you know, provocative that, that had to do with Euclid and geometry in, in general, I find that an interesting fiction. And to put it in his, uh, in his way, uh, reinventing him a little bit for my own purposes, for my recollection of sophomore year in high school. And, and that's how memory works, too. Yeah. That's right. It, it, it never can be trusted to tell the truth. So why don't I use it as, why don't I use memory as freely as possible without, without losing sight of the things that are actually irreplaceably interesting and cannot be any other way than, than the way they were to the best of your recollection. So if you take a little liberty, make sure you don't, you don't get, you know, get carried away with it. I think it was it was a useful way of getting through that stage of the poem to find some way 
to sort of play around with with the truth slightly, have the 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 the, uh, the magnificent liberty to put this in in an old uh, math teacher's uh, mouth and and his uh, his whole plan for that particular day uh, fifty or so years ago uh, as a way of finding out where the poem wants to go because that's all it's about. It's not about recollecting the past. It's about making something out of it. And if that means modifying it somewhat in order to get somewhere with it, the poem allows that. And this poem, it seems like, wanted to traverse that what expectations were being put on the young man. Yeah. And then to show at the end that yeah. that wasn't going to be the path that he actually... Correct. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Because if, if anything, uh, any, any attempt to... Uh, to get me in the direction of, of uh, becoming a Jesuit, you know, was going to be foiled by by nature's own natural course of events, as 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 she might intend, and and this good young Jesuit would uh, would aid and abet that somehow or another. And the co- uh, the colors are wonderful. How they're working in there, where it's talking about this this. Mm, flaw or lack in the, mm-hmm. in the the young man or the the our main character in the the poem. main character whoever and, he is yes whoever he is yeah and um, he always talks about me I don't know why <laughs> yeah. and, but it, and and then but there's something about the necessity of color for this character Correct. that also is playing into the decision that goes into this the reverie of the yeah. tailor's daughter of and, the tailor's daughter and 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 how it comes in with that the the wet grass was red that's right and yeah i was down there yesterday actually in the old neighborhood looking around my grandmother's house which is much the same except um you know things have been modified in the surroundings of it what what um what's the street uh, Morell Michael. Street off of Verner and Junction, um, in the in the in the neighborhood close to Holy Redeemer Church, so, and uh, pretty much due uh, west, I guess it would be. So you could look up uh, at the upstairs uh, where that closet you knew, like this part of the house where you would have run to in that poem. Oh yeah, yeah, I, I, and it was. Um, um, it was very much. I mean, it was very much as I'd remembered it. And, and uh, across the the alley, actually, where uh, my folks moved out of of uh, uh, my grandmother's house after my father uh, uh, and mother were well, I mean, he was a rumor in that house. He had moved to that neighborhood from the east side of Detroit for some reason. Never have figured out why. Possibly because he was looking for a better rooming house to live in. But it made all the difference. It made all the difference. Where he turned, when he got off the bus that afternoon, made all the difference. If he'd gone right rather than left, or whichever way he actually went, he would have gone to another rooming house and, and not married the landlady's daughter and had, you know, the privilege of fathering me and my sister. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it, it it's always one of the things I've often wondered about how that kind of thing, uh, you know, adds up somehow or another in the in the way human life uh, goes on from from one sort of accident to another, and, th- and then you're there looking at all this stuff, and you see, 
how it has kept after all these years. And, uh, you know, someone's else, someone else is living there. They're going through the same kinds of things. In <laughs> Accidents their and chance. And... Accidents and chance. It's all, it's all the fabric of human life. I don't know if there's very much order to it at all, but it makes it quite wonderful. We try to put some order to it, sometimes in the poems, and then to also re- release it again. Again, so. yeah. yeah. That's right. We'll take a short break, okay. and then we'll come back. And, um, Michael, maybe you'll read us another poem when we I'll come back, too. Um Today on the program, Michael Heffernan is here. His latest collection of poetry from Wayne State University Press Press and the Made in Michigan series. Um, The title of the book, At the Bureau of Divine Music. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Today on the program, Michael Heffernan is here. Um, His latest collection at the Bureau of Divine Music. And we're going to hear another poem from this said collection. Um, If, Michael, if you would be so good as to be so kind. I will be so kind and so good if, if, uh, if I'm able um, it, it seemed that perhaps, um, well, we were talking about the title poem, the title um, poem, yeah. uh, or the, the book, the book title comes from yeah. the poem, a poem within. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And, and why did you choose this as the, the sort of what unites the book? Well, I, it, it, it was a, a series of lucky, uh, ans- accidents, I suppose. I was in Beijing, um, following my son around, who was uh, there for, I think it was uh, half a year, as a, a student of Chinese in the um, International Studies program at Boston University. And I was going to be on sabbatical leave that fall, um, and I decided to go visit him. I was in Ireland uh, with Anne, my wife, 
Your muse. My muse, absolutely. And she was going home from Paris to Arkansas. She had to be back uh, home. And we were in Paris. I had planned uh, from Ireland to fly uh, to, uh, to Beijing from Paris. And it was a, it was a, I, I thought it was a, an interesting way to, uh, to go uh, to China across the Eurasian continent instead of across the Pacific Ocean. And the first day that I was there, terribly jet-lagged from however many hours it is, nine hours plus, what, five or six time zones, um, and my son decides to drag me around the city, <laughs> and um, he's a wonderful guy to be with. I love traveling with him. He wasn't going to put up with me being jet-lagged. We've got to see some stuff. So we went over to the uh, Temple of Heaven complex. We saw the Temple of Heaven, which is one of the most famous uh, Chinese landmarks, uh, marketing the, the country to tourists uh, constantly. And we found that it was in a great park in the middle of the city with other things in it that you could go and wander around and look at. And if you got away from the temple itself and made your way out to the main street, the, surround, uh, the streets that surround the compound, you're going to go through a forest. And then when you're, uh, when you're past that, there's going to be a, a sign that will point to something called the Bureau of Divine Music. And I had no idea what that was. It took me a while to figure out that this lovely name of a place uh, was probably associated with the emperor's uh, purpose for being there at that compound, uh, doing one of his imperial duties to appeal to the gods for a good harvest, which would probably mean he'd have to have some some uh, musical accompaniment by way of uh, singers and uh, other musicians who probably trained in the Bureau of Divine Music. But this odd sort of lingo that is, is used by particularly the People's Republic government in reference to, uh, to historical sites, which, which they're very happy to uh, invite tourists to come and experience from the imperial era of China to show how how liberal-minded they are toward their own history and how they're not going to tear down any of these things uh, that represent uh, China's uh, past. So here is a, 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 a structure that was apparently uh, the place where, where the, uh, the emperor's musicians uh, trained. And they call it a bureau of divine music. And under, you saw it. You went there. I, I didn't go there. The, 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 the interesting thing about this poem and a lot of the things that go on in some of these traveling poems of mine, and there's a lot of them based on my travels. I do travel a lot. But some of the places I go to best are invented in my imagination somehow based on places that I may have been close to or I looked at. In this case, we were in, an, in a hurry to get out of there. It was on toward the latter part of the day. It was getting colder and darker. This was in late October. And so we just, all we did was get a glimpse of the place. And a student of mine actually found it on a website somewhere and showed me what it looked like, which is exactly what I thought it would look like. But this was based on a sign pointing it out in, in, the, in the near distance. And, and, I, and I thought almost immediately that would be a great title. So I wrote the poem several years later. I took notes on it. And then, I mean, I've never done this before. The poem was deliberately written because of the title I wanted it to have. And somewhere along the way, I said to myself, that would be a great book title. 
So this is not the way you're supposed to do it. <laughs> but I figured I, 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 I had the liberty to because, you know, well, I did it. Anyway, here it is. The whole day I hung around in the sky over Russia was a Wednesday in October. No one looked up with any semblance of regard from the heroic Russian people. I had flown from Paris to visit the Faubourgs of Omsk, Irkutsk, Novosibirsk, but they were filled with a smother of blue coal fires, shadows of shadows, coughing up tendrils of gray phlegm onto ice flows that passed for boulevards, back alleys, byways that ended in country lanes, over the Urals to Ulaanbaatar and the Mongolian grasslands. What is the object of going but to bring back free toothbrushes, peach bloom porcelains, and colorful boxes of sandalwood soaps from marble-tiled hotel baths with the only water pressure in Datong or Yingzhan? Never mind photographs. As my old friend Ray used to say, tapping his forehead, the pictures you take in here are the best ones. I don't know how we got there, but rather than walk back the way we came, we rambled down the long path from the Temple of Heaven to a park with sad trees and a moat, and across the moat, a yellow palisade. Nobody else was around. If unearthly voices fluttered out to us on the swell of wind, we couldn't hear them. Should the sociopathic cab driver drive himself to heaven after taking us home, his cadaver would need to be viewed from behind. The star-shaped mole on his left shoulder blade said nothing to anyone. Only two of us, possibly three, remember the tune he often repeated. I mean, oh, go ahead. Thank, thank you for reading that one, yeah. Michael. And I wondered if, when you were talking with the press, did yeah. you, because the cover oh, picture the, works against like the sound of the title, like if if you don't know that this is from, like if you haven't read the poem yet right. and you don't know where it's rooted right. in in China, and um, because it's it's a the picture itself is like of of dis- destruction, and so yeah. I wondered if you talked with them about that and they came up with this or did you choose the I kind of I I didn't find it directly but someone I was with uh, when I was doing a a program I have in Paris where I was actually spending a lot of time in the city of light working through uh, page proofs and doing all of this stuff and then needing to recommend something as a as a co- as cover art. So this is from a Paris. Uh, well, it's it was done by a couple of French photographers. They came to Detroit. Yeah, I was going to say it yeah. looks like Detroit. To it me. is Detroit, and it's a, it's the Lee Plaza Hotel, as as shot by uh, um, uh, Eve. Is it? Um, um, oh, I've got it right here. I'm always I'm always mixing up the names. Eve Marchand and Romain Meff, who are now major figures uh, 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 in photography because of a book uh, called The Ruins of Detroit. I only saw that image online last summer, not knowing anything about the rest of their photographic work, but it it, it just jumped out off of the screen and said, this goes on your book. If the the people at the press are, are interested in doing this, 
maybe they can arrange to have it there. Because I, 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 and I, I have hardly ever uh, done that. But there was some input that was uh, that was in in process, so to speak. And so this is how it came about. I, I got to put this forward. And it seems really important that it is a, a picture of Detroit. Yeah. And um, so you've never really lost Detroit in you. No. E- even though you, you haven't maybe chosen to come back and make the place the home, because you're more based in Arkansas, even I have, though you're doing a lot of traveling. Or Well, I, I, I don't know how to say this in, fa- in, in a fair, honest way, but the... The, the the gesture that was most specific to my growing up, and I found this out yesterday, when my wife and I got kind of in a a trap around the uh, the entrance to the Ambassador Bridge when we found ourselves in what appeared to be a, a barricaded uh, construction area, and in in the in the region right before the entrance ramp, where you're suddenly on a one-way path that says, you know, from here you go to Canada. If you cannot turn around, well, we fi- I figured out some way in a in a I guess it was a large parking lot or something to ask some guy get me out of here. How do I go back to Detroit? I don't want nothing against Canada, but we weren't going there. And the and the bridge is a part of the of the. Uh, of the whole uh, look of my old neighborhood down there, you can see you, you can't see it from my house. But if you could get up on the top floor, if you could get up to the roof, you could certainly see it. It's the the, the biggest landmark in my entire neighborhood. Which means, this is how you get out of here. Nothing about Detroit, but this is this is the way to travel somewhere else. You'll always come home. You're supposed to come home again. You will love this place forever, and I do. I'll never stop loving that city, but but it, it, it invited um, travel, and my my folks were very big on that uh, uh, from from the beginning of my childhood, as far as I remember. So being able to find a way to go elsewhere across the ocean, do things like like this trip to China and everything, very very germane to the way I I I, I grew up as a Detroiter. Everything that Detroit was about, I thought, and uh, here I am living in Arkansas for. 20 some years having lived in Kansas before that for 19 years um, after after teaching in in uh, Michigan for for only a, a few years after coming back from graduate school um, my father was wandering around during the depression with young guys on on trains going from train yard to train train yard to finding himself from southern Indiana up to up to Detroit I just picked it up where he left off he stayed there the rest of his life as a refrigeration repairman. I went across the bridge, and he followed me in his uh, in his panel truck down there one day when I was going over the bridge to head off to Massachusetts for graduate school. He stood there by his truck waving bye to me because that was what he wanted me to do. We're going to take a short break, and then we'll come back and, and we'll talk more, Michael. Um, Today on Living Writers, Michael Heffernan is here. His book at the Bureau of Divine Music. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Michael Heffernan is here. Um, Michael, thanks again for being here. This this hour has flown by. I know it. So we're just we've agreed that this will be part one of a of a longer series. Okay. <laughs> and um and Michael is actually here, um in Michigan with some upcoming dates that um for uh, where you could hear him reading from his latest collection from Wayne State Press at the Bureau of Divine Music. Um, Some of these dates uh, coming up, April 27th, um, Michael Heffernan um, at Horizon Books in Cadillac. Um, Then there's a series of dates from May 16th to May 20th where Michael will be reading with Tom Lynch, uh, also a friend of the show here. Um, And that's in, let's see, hmm, McLean and Eakin Booksellers will be May 16th. Um, the 17th, West Branch Public Library, um, the 18th, Glen Lake Library, the 19th, Grace Dow Memorial Library, and finally, on May 20th, uh, Michael Heffernan and Tom Lynch at Central Lake Library. Um, so those coming to you in May, you can catch Michael reading some poems um, from at the Bureau of Divine Music. Um, Michael, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, and with Tom's name coming up, uh, mm-hmm. Ireland also naturally <laughs> arises. Kind of, yeah. um, could you say a little bit, because you started to talk about what, um, your last name being Irish at the right. top of the program, Heffernan, um, right. and you had done some research because you taught in Ireland for a, a little bit at some point too. I put together a summer program at the University College of Galway, which is now called the National University of Ireland Galway. Several years ago, 20 years ago. And, sev- several and taught your- over there in, in connection with that program. And, and several of your books um, were published in, uh, from Salmon, Salmon. I have, uh, I have th- uh, three books so far from, uh, from Salmon Publishing. And, and that's from, they're based at the Cliffs of Moher, is that? Well, uh, yeah, yeah. The, that's right. Uh, they started off in Galway City. And then uh, Jesse Lindeni, who runs the press, moved out to... Uh, a small road out in the uh, uh, countryside adjacent to the Cliffs of Moher. Maybe uh, near... About a half a mile down the road. St. Bridget's Holy Well. That's right nearby. St. Bridget's Holy Well is nearby. I go by it all the time on the way to her place. Do you stop? Yes, I love to. It's hard to find sometimes because you can whiz right by it. But uh, I did go in one time. Did, it's a very interesting place. Did you leave anything? An offering? Uh, I've, I left something somewhere else. I don't think I left one there. There was a place where my son, Jim, who had some problem with his eyes, and I, uh, not, not desperately serious, but uh, he, had, he had had some, uh, he had been uh, uh, strabismic when he was a child, cross-eyed. And uh, we saw a, a little roadside sh- shrine near Kilkee in that part of County Clare that uh, uh, w- once you stop, you notice that St. Kil- that, that Key, whom the, the place is named after, is famous for healing eye diseases. I knew so, it. I knew the well that you, as soon as you mentioned it, I, I yeah. can picture it. Yeah. Outside, outside of uh, yeah, Kilkee. Bet- between Kilkee and Movine. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah, you know Movine. <laughs> I do. Oh, I sure. Do. <laughs> well, that, that's where Tom Lynch's cottage is, yeah. And I've, I've stayed over there quite a few times. And J.J. is uh, the neighbor. 
to J.J. McMahon. Would you mind reading the poem? I, and I definitely <laughs> will. This is a poem about uh, us two uh, guys uh, going into Kilkee uh, from Movine uh, when we were staying down at his cousin's cottage there. I think we were lodging with her temporarily. Uh, when this was back when she was alive, and uh, we were Nora. Nora, Nora Lynch, and she uh, she was a fine uh, uh, Irish woman, quite sturdy and vigorous, and uh, had powers that people feared. Uh, Magic, yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. She, she was thought she was thought to have uh, uh, powers that you did not mess with Nora Lynch. Some guy uh, came to the door and cursed her one day, and she did the same to him. While and you dr- were there. Michael? No, this was on another occasion, not long after, but he was found dead under his tractor. Yes, I know that story, actually. Yes. I after after he got finished with his outburst in, in Nora's face at her own door, which he would not have done under normal circumstances. He must have been... Because he wanted the land. And I think that might be interesting because you said she was known to have powers and never yeah. having been married, Nora Lynch. That's I right. I think that was important that something... There was something that surrounded her yeah. as sort of a, a power or protection. I against knew this. The, the men who wanted the land, for example. Well, they 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 were envious of of her having this property, which was a considerable, by Irish standards, uh, a good uh, farm, and um, there was resentment about uh, about it, and uh, lots of that created. Um, stress amongst, uh, I mean, between herself and, and, and the neighbors some, sometimes. And I I would feel myself to be kind of an outsider to all of this. Uh, this was a lot closer to Lynch's, uh, Thomas Lynch's uh, uh, connections there with her as a uh, an older um, a, a second cousin from an old from from a prior generation, uh, have, having a common ancestor. Uh, her grandfather was was his great grandfather, and so as far as I remember the connections, so a lot of that would be under the surface. The the, the tensions with the neighbors that were often expressed fairly directly would also be sort of lingering there in the midst of different kinds of of social activities and places you could go. And I, as a, a friend. Uh, not a primary participant in any of this sort of thing. Thank goodness. Uh, yeah, that's right. And and in a way, my wife and I, many on many occasions over there, have seen these these uh, these layers of uh, interaction and nuanced kinds of responses amongst people that you will you will hear from who are. Uh, talking uh, rather directly to you and apparently rather honestly about things, but they're keeping a lot on, on another level. And as, as much as I know of the place, I've learned some of the signals and can see how this kind of goes on. And uh, it's it's never easy to sort things out. When when Anne is, is f- f- had been earlier with me over there, it would be a matter of having to explain things to her sometimes after an encounter with some people and I'd say well here here are some of the things that were behind all that that was in that conversation and is this um the the poem that you're you're going yeah. to read for us Michael is this was it set in Omaras or which setting uh, can you it's set in in uh, Egan's in Kilkee oh. all of, all of this is true it exactly happened this way none of it is made up 
I'll tell you if anything is, but I'll go through this and, 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 and see if I can't be a person of my word. Okay? It's called The Manhood of Ireland. One afternoon at Egan's in Kilkee, I showed J.J. my map of Shannon Estuary. Look, J.J., I tell him, look at this map. Here's the River Fergus, like a great vast deference, pouring its turgid sperm into the Shannon. Ah, tis, he says, ah, yes, a true bloody fact, and turns to talk about the Charlet and the Whitehead Herefords with Jerry McDermott up the bar. No, J.J., listen to me, I tell him. Look again, look here. This is the manhood of Ireland plunging into that great slut of an ocean. Tis that, he says. Yes, indeed, I see it there, and calls for another pint from Claire Egan for each of us and helps himself to a woodbine out of Jerry's pack. Mary Carey comes over, dangling a half glass between 